Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. Each week, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson are joined by an informed guest to discuss the issues of the day. In this episode, Mike is joined by Amanda Clark, Associate Professor of Public Administration, Digital Government, Data Governance, and Civic Technology at Carleton University. She is also the author of Opening the Government of Canada, the Federal Bureaucracy in the Digital Age. While the pandemic has rejuvenated the value of government services in the public consciousness, it's also revealed cracks in the public sector's ability to deliver citizen services. Longer term, what investments should we be making to modernize public services, increase public trust, and build resilience to manage future challenges? And now, on to the episode. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Educated Conjecture. Uh, my colleague, Sean Simpson, is on vacation this week, so I am all alone. Well, I'm not all alone. I have Amanda Clark here to join us. Amanda is an associate professor and public affairs research excellence chair at my alma mater, Carleton University in the School of Public Affairs, or Public Policy and Administration, which wasn't there when I was going to Carleton many, many moons ago. Um, she's uh, author of opening of a book, Opening the Government of Canada, the Federal Bureaucracy in the Digital Age, a research fellow before, and not exactly before, but before Carleton. Uh, she's a doctor of philosophy, information, and communications from Oxford. Before that, and back to Carleton, 2008 Masters of Arts in International Affairs from the Norman Patterson School at Carleton. And then back before that, 2007 Bachelor of Humanities. So, long time at Carleton, but uh, we're really happy to have you here, and uh, you're with us from Ottawa today. I take That's it. That's right. Yeah, nice to be here. So we're both experiencing the same snowy days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I was I was thinking, Amanda, um, we met, I think, the first time through Ryan Andrasov's Institute on Governance course, um, and mm-hmm. we happened to present, I forget who presented first, but back-to-back, so we saw a little bit of each other's presentation, um, which I still do today. I think we're on the eighth wave of that course, and as are you. Um, but I never get to see your presentation anymore because it's we're into the Zoom world. Uh, so it, so I, we would have never met in today's world, I guess is my, my point. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing how technology has done a bunch of things, but that, you know, for me to sit there and listen to you that day and go, oh, I've covered a bunch of those things, and I think vice versa uh, was was very eye opening. But uh, today, I, I don't even see you. So I know these are the things we're giving up in this this rush to to keep the remote lifestyle going. So I'm yeah. I'm all for pushing things back in person for those exact yeah, serendipitous meetings. Right? Some some balance and 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 some opportunities along that line would be be very interesting. And I, I think we'll get into a little bit of that shift to digital when we talk about government. I, I'm really happy you're here today because I think that um, government's one of those things that we, and I say we collectively Canadians, don't think enough about. Um, I mean, we complain a lot about it. <laughs> we react to news, we react to service, we have views on government. But I don't think we sit down uh, like we do uh, some of the big decisions we make in our lives and think about the role, the function, what is brought to us, what, you know, it's real value. Um, and, and so I'm hoping that um, we can raise a little literacy today uh, through our conversation about where, where government's going and sort of that, that value. Um, I don't know, do you, do you find that? You don't think, I mean, you obviously spend your career is thinking about government, but outside of your, your colleagues and your circles, uh, do, do you think that we think enough about the role of government? As citizens? 
I mean, maybe it's happening in more in, in less obvious ways. For sure, during the pandemic, I think the, the role of government in our, all of our lives has become way more obvious because so I mean, I think there's certain segments of the population that are more likely in general to interact with government because they're reliant on benefits, um, because they're, you know, heavy service users. Um, and that's clearly not distributed evenly across the population. And so, um, but but during the pandemic, I mean, I think all of us, um, whether it was like trying to access government um, benefits, and many people who may not have needed benefits before were suddenly applying for CERB and interacting with the federal bureaucracy and with their provincial service providers in really intimate ways. And then, you know, booking vaccine appointments and trying to seek out the latest information on what's allowed and what's not allowed. And so I think for, for many Canadians, like they might not be sitting there having these sort of thoughtful reflections on what what role they wish the state to play in their lives. But we're thinking a lot about government and experiencing we, we- government in a very we, real way we turn to it very quickly i i'm 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 not old enough to have remembered war footings but it, but in talking to my to my mother and and you know some other folks here like it was very reminiscent to them of sort of when when wars happen right they turned to government for information turned to government you know we were on a on a on a to quest together to to defeat something in this case the virus so i i do think we got a little focus there i'm wondering long term whether it will hold, um, you know, and will continue to be be focused on it in, in sort of the long term. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this exciting moment we're in right now where from I think the public sector in, in many jurisdictions has been has really been really neglected for, for many decades. And there's been a real push to kind of privatize. And, um, you know, it's been very common to kind of dismiss government as just sort of incapable or maybe not as important or as valuable in kind of producing societies in which we want to live. And clearly the pandemic has, has, you know, really reminded us that, like, no, government does play a very essential role in in kind of (laughs) in in maintaining our society and, and securing our welfare. So there's this opportunity now going forward to think about how we, we kind of seize on that momentum. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more in the conversation, but there's also, I think, a countercurrent, which is that there are a lot of kind of private corporations also waiting in the wings, trying to reshape that narrative in their favor so that they can continue to get contracts and managed services. So there's like, in terms of thinking about the future, like I think either of those scenarios is, is entirely possible. And I'm, you know, definitely on the side that is like, let's use this as an opportunity to really think about what we need to do to upgrade and kind of renew our public services so that we're capable of handling these kinds of existential threats going forward. Because like, clearly there were lots of things that happened during the pandemic, which made us realize that like, we haven't been investing significantly in our state, yeah. and whether that's weak data capacity, the inability to kind of like, effectively communicate to the population. I mean, there were like there were a lot of big public sector wins and, you know, clearly our governments are not completely. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic, yeah. there's a lot of resilience there as well. But there were also a lot of like weak points that were made very obvious during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I was going to normally we start off with some 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 data points and I was going to reflect on the data points. But but I, I love this theme that we're on. So I want to I I I do think that you're right. I and mean, we, we showed some real resilience, both as humans and as institutions and as business and the economy. At the same time, we shone some pretty bright lights on some some glaring omissions, um, lack of investment. Um, and, and I think, you know, wonder what your thoughts going forward. Probably more pressures than not when you look at digitization, aging society, um, backlogs in healthcare, some of those things that, you know, what's the what's the. Uh, 
what, what, what are you hopeful, optimistic that governments can can I don't want to say rally because that sounds short term, but tact uh, from from the lights and shine of some of those those areas and 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 uh, achieve what Canadians are looking for. Hmm. Well, some of it will be around probably the, the politics of the day. I mean, depending on the jurisdiction and and kind of the leanings of the political leadership. For those who are more kind of leaning towards like investment in public sector and and kind of I guess more more on the left side of the spectrum center left um I mean this is their this is your time to to, to really shine if you want to like continue to yeah. see that picking up on those stories that like the clear evidence which showed that privately run long-term care facilities had much worse outcomes than publicly run ones mm-hmm. or the you know um the need to really invest in kind of modern skills for public servants so that we have more data capacity and there you can look to countries like denmark which did so well in their pandemic response in part because they had they had a lot of that capacity um one of the spaces that there's room i think to, to seize on what we saw during the pandemic and and realize like, okay, this is where we need to focus our attention is also on building social license and public trust for, for government intervention, because there's also, you know, I think especially when it comes to some of the digital technologies and data use that yes, during the pandemic, but also going forward to improving our services and kind of building um, smarter systems in government, more evidence-based policymaking. Um, there's also a lot of risks that can come from the state accumulating new sources of data and applying them in new and untested ways. And we've seen in a lot of cases that governments just simply get it wrong, right? Like they employ artificial intelligence and then we realize that actually there were kind of distinctly kind of racist patterns in how the data were being rallied and applied yeah. in terms of like the outcomes being inequitable. So um, that's like, there's also lots of room for governments to mess up this moment by not doing the hard work of like working in the open, being really transparent about how they're thinking about the future of the public service, earning public trust and kind of bringing the public along with them and like really laying out strong governance and policies around what modernization is going to look like. And that's something that governments have not been good at to date. Like most of the work around digitizing the state and renewing the public service has been very like kind of like under wraps inside baseball, kind of like the Ottawa machine might know about it, but like it's not something that we have a public conversation about, which gets to your first point that most people aren't sitting around talking about government. Governments need to start changing that because you're going to run into walls like where you won't there's room to improve and innovate how you're doing your business in government and how you're designing services, let's say, but you haven't actually built the culture of trust to do that. Um, And then you'll, you'll fail. One recent example of that would be like StatsCan's attempt to pull in financial sector data, um, banking data, basically, which is really common in many jurisdictions and is sort of legal under statistics, Canada's um, regulatory and legal regime. But the public backlash was so intense that they just had to shut it down. And that's like where you start to see that the the public trust piece like really needs to be there. And we need to really, really focus on that going forward. So is that you build public trust by having these conversations at the open and sort of an ongoing basis? It seems to, seems to me, and I'll answer my own question a little bit, is that uh, the part of the lack of tolerance and risk is, is, is we don't allow governments to fail on any given file without, um, you know, taking them to task in the media right where where businesses fail all the time they they try four things and two work but you never hear about the two that didn't work right i mean and i'm not talking about breaches of information but 
programs that you try and just don't sell or just aren't effective, right? But you try because that's part of the, the risk tolerance you have. It doesn't seem to me we allow governments to do that. And maybe that's because they, as you said, they work within the Ottawa bubble and launch it, launch something to succeed. And if it doesn't, we're like, oh my gosh, how did that fail? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the conversation around failure tolerance, obviously like they're, they're, Failure in government can have much higher stakes than in the private sector. You know, um, like shareholder value is maybe like less of a concern at a public, like relative to say like checks not being sent out, like because a system yeah. didn't work. And then like, I don't know, recipients of benefits who act, like rely on those benefits to pay for their medications or to be able to pay yeah. their rent. You know, and that is like very much something that could happen if government systems fail. At the same time, that's actually kind of a misleading first step into this conversation, because actually what you're talking about, and I think what a lot of public servants talk about when I interview them for my research, is that the there's there's sort of zero scope for a culture that of kind of like innovation and learning and trial and error, which can be done in very controlled and very safe ways. So, you know, and in fact, the way that we set up our systems now in government is that we're often launching massive programs, massive policy changes, um, or even maintaining just the status quo without ever evaluating and uncovering the way that the status quo is already failing people um, and already producing services that are subpar or that are not actually solving the problems they're intending to solve. Um, So like one way of saying it is like, we already have like a huge failure tolerance in government because it's just, (laughs) look at the health system. Yeah. The other side of it it is just um, that, you know, um, if you kind of, and this is where I think the kind of the digital government mentality, which is sort of less about technology and why the, the label is actually really unhelpful in some ways, it, it, because it's, it's much more about moving from a culture of like control and planning in government to one of um, kind of um, innovation and learning and a regular iteration through kind of feedback loops so that you you don't you don't build up to massive failure. You kind of create tolerance for learning as you go. And yeah. That that's I think a really exciting space for that to work though. I mean to get back to the kind of the public trust thing and that interface between public opinion on government and government operations. Like I think we have to have quite a shift in our political culture, where you know, and public servants rightfully tell me like, well, I'm afraid to try something different or work in a different way because um, if we fail, like you know, we'll be on the cover of the Globe and Mail. And that's like the worst thing that you can do as a public servant is like to get your minister in trouble in the national newspapers. And so as long as that's the the tolerance, like the public, the perceived or actual public tolerance for any kind of mistake in government, like we're not going to be able to have very innovative public services because you're, you're creating like an, an environment where the incentives are all in favor of like just keeping the course, right? Um, so that's something that like, Politicians have a role to play. The public has a role to play, and media have a role to play in like trying to tell more of the good news stories, and also maybe building our kind of education and literacy around the role of learning and experimentation in any high-functioning, innovative organization. Yeah, I, do you think there's a capacity issue there too? You, there, because of the lack of investments, I'll, I'll use both the media and the public sector. Lack of investments in both. You know, you in the public sector, <laughs> you don't have time to innovate to think through because you're just so busy with today's work um and we have so we can't carve out people to 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 lead on that agenda and I, and I think in the media to a certain extent um we've cut back um the number of people 
providing coverage of government uh, so so little that that the and the speed of communications happened that if you can't answer it today, it's not a story. So the story today is we can't fi- find six hundred billion dollars, or the story today is this failed. Um, not what did we learn through the failure, or how did was this part of a bigger process, right? We just and that just gets lost because that follow up story maybe six weeks from now and it's not going to be on the front page. Yeah, I always feel bad when I when I criticize the media for not really capturing the government innovation, government tech story very well, because like, to be fair, that, that is an industry that has been like pretty gutted. And, the you know, there's yeah. there's not a lot of um, funding and, and sort of resources to support long form journalism and investigative journalism to these things. So I kind of get that. Um, but, but I think. Like and and then to your point as well about you know is there capacity in government and time and resources for this sort of thing, I mean I think yes and no. Like on the one hand, I think right now the way that we structure the policy process and the service design and delivery process in government, there's a lot of time spent on kind of internal accountability checks. And this is not an argument to get rid of accountability, but rather to kind of recalibrate away from from a very overly process oriented. approach to, to accountability where there's a there's a I mean public service talk a lot about the reporting burden and I think that kind of um, the 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 need to like satisfy internal checks and internal reporting and internal auditing um, can take away from a lot of the time that could be spent more on prototyping and testing and experimenting and engaging with those who will actually be using your services, um, running kind of pilots on policies. And all of this is like where you'd build that capacity for learning as you go and managing potential for failure in a really safe way um, and a kind of publicly accountable way. Um, I think this problem is like particularly acute in the federal government that through, a, you know, I think in response to a number of like his, historical accountability breaches. So whether that's the sponsorship scandal or the perceived um, HRDC sponsorship or um, grants and contribution boondoggle, the, which, the billion dollar boondoggle. Yeah, which of course like didn't turn out to be as much of Nothing. a boondoggle as anyone thought. But nonetheless, <laughs> it has this lasting impact. And public servants talk about how there's this very clear sense in the federal bureaucracy that you, you you know it's a cover your ass culture is the term that public servants use with me all the time um and that you know it's um if you go through your entire career and you never have a, a, a failure that a journalist picks up on um then you've you've like succeeded right and so i mean and 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 that the response to some of these 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 actual or perceived um, massive failures and kind of accountability in government and at the federal level has been to really layer on incredible amounts of top-down oversight and hierarchy and process. And I mean, there's a hypothesis, and I think there's something to be said here that it's actually particularly bad in Canada. And this comes strictly from public servants I've spoken to who've worked both for the federal government of Canada and for other jurisdictions. And they say, like, one thing they really, really notice is that the government of Canada is incredibly obsessed with approvals and top-down oversight and accountability. And I think this is something that we have kind of encouraged through our media and political culture and that we really need to address as a definite barrier to the resilience and and and, and quality of our, of our federal public service going forward. Because um, you're, you're like public servants who are doing the good work of trying to improve processes in government and trying to be more innovative and more kind of um, citizen centric and how they design and deliver services and more evaluative and do all the right things. 
like they are fighting such an uphill battle that the burnout rates are incredibly high um, because the organization is just really, despite some top level leadership and some people who are trying to change, it, it remains that the status quo in the federal government is that it is very, very difficult to bring in some of these more modern ways of working. Um, and that's just like, I think, something that we don't talk about enough in our country as a, yeah. as a real, real weakness in our public sector capacity right now. And then the public are stuck between that. Well, it used to be the public were stuck between face-to-face service delivered through government and what they would get in the retail sector. And as unfair a comparison that might be is you go to you you, you go to your Honda dealer, you go you know to to different face-to-face pizza wherever you get your retail outlet. And then you would go to government and they would say, "Oh, government's much slower in bricks and mortar." And today, Canadians are stuck between what you just described and. Uh, Netflix and Amazon and streaming services and platforms that change overnight. Uh, and so you have this very rapidly changing experience on one side of your life, and yet this this seemingly slower at the other side. Is there a, is there an opportunity to government to look more like platforms, or is that the, a, the wrong direction to go, uh, or to take advantage of platforms even? I think when the, the kind of the big interest in digital government first started, kind of like the early 2010, 2010s, there was a lot of like people, I mean, I remember Scott Bryson, who was the, um, when he was president of the Treasury Board and the first yep. minister of digital government referred to like, you know, you can't have a, a blockbuster government serving a Netflix citizenry was I think his like mm-hmm. line that he liked to use. Yeah. And, I mean, a Great lot line. of would, yeah, draw these analogies of like, well, government, you know, government needs to look more like Google or more like Facebook. And now I think, you know, with hindsight and like, it wasn't helpful to draw those comparisons because especially in the past few years with the tech lash that we've seen, I wouldn't say that any organization and especially government should be modeling itself against some of these, um, <laughs> these digital yeah, giants. Yeah. Um, so what I think we have to do is, and what I think is a more helpful way of looking at it is less to say like government needs to play catch up to the private sector, but rather to kind of remind ourselves, and the pandemic is one opportunity to do this, climate change is, is another, is to say like there are things that government can do um, that are that are like massive and impressive and that no other organization historically has ever been able to do. And we need to get excited about the vision of the public sector as a guarantor of public welfare again. And we're not going to get there by trying to play catch up to private corporations that it turns out now that after a few more years of evidence of the influence they have on our society and economy and democracy yeah. happen to be um, really problematic, very poorly yeah. governed. Um, you know, in no way do they embody the the principles that we would want to see in our in our public sector. So this is what I mean when I think it's like it's exciting to imagine more of a public conversation around um, digital government because I actually think it's really a conversation of the future of the administrative state. Like what what do we want our government's values to be, um, and where that'll manifest in technology is questions around like. How do we want our governments to collect data and use it? What data do we think they should collect? What principles should inform how advanced technologies are applied to the policy process? You know, um, how do we make sure that the beneficiaries of these reforms are kind of that the, the benefits are felt broadly across society and not just by a privileged segment of the population? And these are like very different kind of value based conversations that we that we can get into if we start talking about a vision of government and its role in society, as opposed to like, how should government deliver the same service experience as Netflix? Because like, there's just something fundamentally different there. Netflix is delivering me television shows, which let's be clear, I truly appreciate. But 
and are making decisions about like what pharmaceutical, what, 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 like, yeah. how we should, like whether or not people should have access to pharmaceuticals or like where we should rank the importance of, um, you know, investing in social housing versus supporting like kind of large corporate developers. Like, you know, what, and these are like what skills are do we questions. tag for immigrants coming into the country that will drive our economy in the future? Exactly. Like winners of some yeah. and losers of others. And they reflect kind of political ideas about about society. So they're it's just more complicated. It's also why it's more exciting and why we need to spend a lot more time thinking about our government, because they are the, the arbiters of these big, big conversations right yeah. you know, your uh, peer sometimes colleague Jonathan Kraft I was at a conference with him once and he said you know people always complain about uh, government not moving fast enough and he goes you have to remember government was built to move slow it was built to consider a lot of very deep heady conversations and more than one point of view and he goes, it's easy in the private sector because they only have clients to serve and the government has to serve both the clients and those people who might be affected by it on the, the side. It's just much more complicated beast. And uh, so I, I brought the platforms because that's the reaction we get from people. If, 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 if Amazon can be a logistics wonder, why can't government? Um, and so you get that juxtaposition for the public who are stuck in between. Um, so a, a couple, you, you brought up the, 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 uh, the future of sort of uneven benefits. And I wanted to put out a couple of the data points that we have in the the, the study. I think we've walked you guys through it, the, the Ipsos Next study. Uh, 70% of Canadians say that they think the future of tech benefits, not in government, but writ large, will be, will be unevenly distributed. And six in 10 say that they don't think that law and government policies are keeping up with the pace of change. Um, do, do, are you worried about technology being unevenly distributed, that we're creating a different form of haves and have-nots. Uh, those who have the wherewithal to, you know, will stick with government access, government services, and those who will always struggle because they either don't have the aptitude or the technical skills. Uh, I mean, this is where I think the the kind of the digital government um, approach is actually really promising because, again, it's not so much, and this is, like I said, the label is really unhelpful, and I think there, there's, like, maybe time for, for those in this space to sort of talk about branding a little bit, but... Um, the the true like the true kind of digital government orthodoxy is really not about just like taking things and putting them online um, or forcing the online option. Um, far from it. It's actually much more about kind of engaging with those with with like service users at a really intimate personal level and understanding how they walk through a government service. So sometimes the methods are like quite ethnographic um, and qualitative. It's like how would you answer this form? At what point in the requirements for access to this service do you just give up because you're like. Well, I don't know how I'd get that information. Like, and this this is where the current approach of of how we design and and um, kind of deliver government programs is that there, you know, the non non uptake of benefits, non uptake of government services for which people are eligible is is high and actually really problematic and unevenly distributed because there's a certain kind of knowledge and time and resources that you need to navigate the bureaucratic systems that we've set up. So that's where the access um, issue is like already very present. And if we go the route of, I'd say the kind of the, the high quality approach to digital government, which is really about, again, kind of understanding people's um, human level experience with government, you can open up access. And it might mean that some things aren't online. It's not strictly about putting them and digitizing them, but rather it's about kind of changing the language you use in a form to make it more accessible or looking at, um, what the the kind of yeah the requirements might be to to be eligible to 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 like satisfy the the check to be able to access the benefit mm -hmm. these things, um, 
I mean, on the question about like people feeling, what was it you said, six and ten don't think that the government's um, keeping pace. Keeping pace. That's that's sort of another piece of it too. Is like there's the how government itself is designing and delivering services, but then there's the question of government's role as policymaker and regulator of these technological. Um, and 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 that number is actually like I, I would wonder if that's going to continue to go down too as we as we see kind of the public awareness of the societal risks that the big technology platforms bring to the table and the need to have more oversight and regulation of these of these bodies. And if we don't have governments that have both the kind of the capacity and also the political courage to step in and start to regulate these industries, I mean, that's another space where we can start to see public trust in government erode. So the, the regulatory piece is another really big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often get... Um focus on the frontline service aspect of it and how it compares. And you're right that there's a whole policy piece and regulatory piece, which is arguably <laughs> a much bigger piece of government, right? Um, you know, from everything from pharmaceutical approvals through to uh, who we allow to use the different spectrums for, for delivering, you know, television and, and, and communications. Um, and uh, I, I just, I find it interesting. Our, our, our go-to is how does it compare apples to apples service versus service? Um, where those companies never have to, uh, they you know Netflix doesn't have a um, <laughs> have have the regulatory arm to flex, right? So they don't have to worry about it. Um, you you mentioned the sort of the, we talked about the platforms, but just in general, all business. Um, there's a a pull from the public. You know, it used to be um, corporate social responsibility, and now it's ESG, and you know, it's it's morphed a little bit. But this desire for the public to say, I think it's seven and ten globally now, say, I want um, the businesses that I that I purchase from to have an opinion and 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 try to have some influence on social issues. Um, and so, do you see any any conflict there? We're we're actively as the public pulling. Um, everywhere from banks to large corporations to small corporations saying, no, what's your, what's your, not only what's your view and our show me you're doing it internally, certainly on diversity, climate change, we want you to look after your own house, but we want you to help change society as well. Um, is there an opportunity to work together or are those going to butt heads eventually because of the, the very different nature of business and government? Hmm. I think right now there's already a pretty strong influence of the private sector on how governments are thinking about and, and kind of designing, delivering services and managing their policies. And this happens, I mean, we can look at it pretty clearly through the, um, so I guess your question of like, should there be more of a role for business in shaping government? I think that's already a pretty heavy, um, like a pr- I think that influence is already pretty sh- strong and, and maybe where we could stand to have a bit more pushback uh, is I think like to be a bit more, um, transparent about some of the ways that this influence is being exerted. Um, like speaking specifically to the area that I look at around kind of the design and, and delivery of, of government services, there's like the official lobbying that's happening from some of these big companies. Um, and here I'm less worried about the platforms and more like your big consulting agencies and some of the big tech firms like um, IBM, for example, and Microsoft. Um, and, and so there's like the official lobbying that's happening, but there's also these organizations have been kind of deeply embedded in the digital design and digital infrastructure of the state for decades now, to the point that it's almost like it's just so integrated that 
you know, whether it's through interchanges between um, executives from these organizations and government who, when they're doing big digital transformation projects, um, the kind of free, like with air quotes, obviously, um, corporate <laughs> thing that is provided. Um, and then like, so, so the, and then like the, the reports that are written and you start to see how these companies are framing the future of state and, and then the role that they necessarily have to play in providing advice and support for that. So I'm, I'm pretty concerned about that because I don't think that this is like a, a solid um, route to building the public trust and to having this kind of a principle-based approach. To, and also, frankly, that these projects usually fail when we have this heavy influence by these actors because they don't have a strong track record of delivering big digital government projects. So that that kind of concerns me. I mean, as to the kind of bigger question about what role should the private sector play in policymaking, um, I'm not like not naive to the reality that government is a massive stakeholder for a lot of the like implementation of a lot of government policy objectives will depend on having industry on board and like understanding industry's needs. And clearly like we need to maintain an economy. So I, mean, I think that that's fine to be there, but, um, and there's, there's a whole school of thought in the kind of more, um, progressive policymaking world that talks a lot about co-producing alongside these stakeholders. What I think we just need to have is a sort of a balancing out with some of the other stakeholders whose voices really do not have a lot of influence over policymaking um, right now. And this would be more, more of our kind of a broad base of civil society groups. Yeah. Um, there's definitely more room for researchers and academics to partner with government and to, to be feeding into those processes. So if we want to make a more pluralist policy process that draws in the insights of industry, then I think we're doing that already. We also have all these other voices that have been pretty neglected in a lot of our policy areas. Are you, are you optimistic about that more pluralist voice? Or are you, it seems to me that it's been captured for quite a while between um, uh, business and government that I, 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 you know, from our side of it, we, you know, we provide public opinion in, but, but citizens assemblies, uh, consultations happen, but they, they seem, um, more pro forma than, than sort of, um, long-term and ingrained. Positive and hopeful. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I have to say that studying Canadian public administration in particular is a bit of a it's a bit of a depressing field because you can find books written in the 60s and the 70s and 80s and onwards that make the exact same complaints that you'll hear about now when you talk about the state of, of governance in Canada and what the challenges are. And I think this is partially why the, the remedies offered by the digital government model of the state are very um, convincing is because actually they're they're not highlighting new problems and nor are they offering new solutions. They're often pointing to things that have long been documented, issues that have long been documented in how we govern. And so where that becomes de depressing, though, is that, um, you know, if we've been complaining about this for so long and we've had multiple reform efforts and public servants and academics and commentators and media calling for reform, and yet we still are in the same position we're in now, um, you know, it makes you feel like it's perhaps a little bit of a, like fruitless endeavor to try to change how government works. That said, we are clearly at, at a critical juncture right now. There's an opportunity, I think, to kind of reframe this. And that's why I'm excited about the, the post-pandemic future. So like to, to remain hopeful, what I think we need to have is those who are who, who want to push to this kind of brighter future for government um, need to like really start working more collaboratively and rallying that narrative in the face of a lot of like entrenched status quo biases to just to return to the old old way of working. And, and what would that look like? I mean, it would be government um, 
you know, largely designing and delivering its services without ever checking in on a really immediate level with stakeholders and users of those services, um, producing projects that have a terrible track record, especially when they involve digital technology. Um, a lot of co contracting going to the same small number of players who've been involved in our massive digital service projects for the past 20 years. And, and like, let's be clear, if you're involved in the digital service projects and you're just you're involved in the core kind of heart of the, the policy making process in government, because that's where the action is. Right. I mean, every um, big policy promise has some kind of digital system supporting its design and delivery or like actually leading to its frontline service uh, manifestation. So and, and it will also mean that I think the culture of accountability and governance within our public organizations will continue to be deeply siloed, deeply hierarchical um approvals that don't actually generate accountability but that just take away the limited time the public servants have to actually do important work and instead force them to to stick with the red tape so um and and like this is a plea to get rid of the red tape from someone who like deeply believes in the role of government so this isn't yeah. some right wing yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that that's like you're not you're not you're not the cheerleader for less government no, and like the, I think the, like this is where it becomes yeah. So I, I like to try but to less be red tape. positive, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. To your question about like whether I'm positive, I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic that it's like there's no guarantees here. I and mean, in ten years, we could be having this conversation and really be complaining about some of the same challenges, and yeah. that's that's a very scary thought. So if COVID was um, has been an eye opener and uh, an opportunity to showcase the ability to to tack, to move quickly, to double down on the value. Is is climate change that that long-term large piece that if we rallied around? I just, I'm, you mentioned building a narrative of how, where we want to go. It's very hard to build a narrative around 37 different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, you go back and I'll, I'll be as corny as to go back as to, you know, uh, the U.S. putting a man on the moon. Uh, it became a rallying cry and a focus that a whole bunch of things dominoed down from. Is climate change that uh, that next piece for us? Does it offer that hope? I think that the tricky thing there is like, you know, the, the climate crisis predated the pandemic and didn't lead yeah. to these kinds of massive like reevaluations, you know, yeah. of, OK, what are what are we doing here? And, and um, what so that's a tricky, a, tr a trickier one. And also the pandemic is different in that there was like a very clear enemy that everybody was on board with, whereas there's lots of you know, there's a diversity of views on how we should handle the climate. And there's clear losers from. Well, from yeah. well and it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but that it's diversity is on how we handle it, not that it needs to be handled. Right. Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Reach that consensus yeah. point. But um, yeah. so that that's kind of I mean, I'm not an expert at all on kind of global climate policy. And 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 so I don't want to sort of step outside my domain here. But as someone who is an expert in, in the public sector and, and how they tend to respond to external crises and, and like what what conditions drive government to really question it, how it's operating and reform. Um, I, I don't know that, um, and I don't know that climate change has so far proven to have that um, capacity in Canada, at least. Um, I still think that the pandemic has that power, especially in the years to come where we're going to see like the postmortem start to come out on what went right and what went wrong. We're already starting to see that, right? Like the evaluation of um, the failures in public sector data capacity, that's yeah. a huge story to seize on if you really want to evaluate um like government as a knowledge organization right and like there's a for decades people have been complaining that we haven't been investing in strong enough evidence-based policy making 
partially this is what the, the liberal government's, you know, deliverology commitments were supposed to be about, you know, really focusing on kind of data-driven policy and evaluation and outcomes to adjust policies accordingly to achieve your policy objectives. Um, all of that sounds great, but, you know, you, you can't really, you can do that unless you have an organization that is data literate and that has a strong data governance culture and that has the public's trust to use um, data in new and interesting ways. And so that's like, that's one one strand, I think, of the pandemic that could have staying power to lead to, to real change going forward. And that's kind of an interesting, yeah, an interesting potential. On the, on the data piece, how much do you think it hurts us that we, um, I'll have to put it nicely, that we have provinces in between the feds and the municipalities, right? I mean, if you look at the UK, you have the NHS straight down to the the, the regions, right? Uh, so that, you know, you've, you've lost whole data flow. And, and in Canada, we every province has its own jurisdiction over those things. So, you know, just the time to coordinate is is that much more. With people, whether they agree or not, it just adds another layer, at least on health, education. Yeah. And, and I think you, know, you hear this all the time from public services that one of the big challenges in Canada is just the, the kind of the federal reality that you need coordination across jurisdictional boundaries to make a lot of these um, service innovations in particular work and because, you know, um, delivery might rest with another order of government, but the data needed to improve it is with another order. And how do you coordinate? And there's this. For, for you know a number of years now, there's been a movement of public servants across provincial and the federal government trying to kind of join up data systems and thinking about like a federated data structure and what this could look like and, and doing a lot of that really hard groundwork and building those connections. Um, I think one of if I could be critical of that movement, I think one of the issues is that it's again, it's been done under the radar. And then. Um, I think if you want to start talking about different orders of government sharing data more intimately and having more of those joined up systems, while there is great potential to improve the service experience, because like it wouldn't matter which government you were interacting with. And, you know, you might not have to enter your data into as many forms because it would already be there populated by shared data agreements. You need to really build the public trust around that or it's going to blow up in your face. And um, I fear for, I, I am concerned about some public servants I've talk to in this space who who are really like they're more than happy to use not very strong public opinion data about the public support for these kinds of data integrations because they it helps them make their case and that's just dangerous like because you know you need to have a solid um you need to have a, you need to have social license for these things to move ahead and to and to to, to not blow up in your face because um, there's no point in improving services if the data infra infrastructure that it rests on is not trusted by the population. Um, that's like, I mean, it's, it's irresponsible. Um, and, and it also likely means it's going to be halted at some political level, because if the, if stakeholder groups push back against it, then, you know, you, you didn't do the groundwork to get support in the first place and it's going to fail. So, yeah. Yeah, have a... Uh an incredible desire to ask about the political level and polarization, but I think that's another 45-minute conversation. Uh, so so I, I want to ask you one more question before, because I've already taken up a lot of your time. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have done um, a, a couple presentations and a couple meetings with the, the Ottawa Civic Tech folks, of which I am not one, but I've gone and, and talked to them a few times. Um, and I don't know how, how much you've interacted with them or, or looked at that those organizations around the country, um, but I found them... At, at fascinating that you have this this group of essentially people who are just interested in data 
uh, technology and civic roles and, and, and are there to, to share, think about the future. You know, you had public sector, you had private sector. Um, I got, I got into it cause of Brett Tackerberry. Uh, I don't know if you know Brett, uh, but it had, had asked me to come in and speak. And, and, and so I just thought there's, there's a real grassroots movement there around the country that, 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 that holds a lot of hope and promise. Um, you know, there was a, um, a young guy in one of them and he was mapping all the near misses at, from the NAVCAN data on his own, just to, as a, something that he thought would be valuable to do right and and so i I remember that and there's tons of people sharing those kinds of ideas and i just wondered if what you thought about that movement and whether there's you know a a way to harness that in 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 government writ large yeah absolutely and i think the thing with that movement of like civic tech groups and open data enthusiasts um early on there was a community of both activists and and policymakers and researchers who were who thought that the future of government would be really to tap into this kind of collective capacity and to have more of a kind of participatory state. And like, let's be clear, those assumptions were naive and like really kind of um, uh, overpromised and underdelivered in that there's a lot of aspects of state administration that require large infrastructure and ongoing investment and a tax base and all these kinds of things. So there was a movement away from that. And and some of that was what we started to see in government was the creation of their own almost like in-house civic tech type groups like the Canadian Digital Service or the Ontario Digital Service, which bring tech talent into government bureaucracy to work in these kind of new ways. Um, but what I think I'd like to see now is, and I think you're starting to see some more interest in this across um, governments in Canada, is like to, to to take a more balanced approach to how to tap these resources, right? Because there is um, like, there's no way that government needs to do all this work on its own. And where you have capacity in community groups um, to collaborate, that only makes sense to do so. And what you need to have, I think, instead of just naively assuming that like, that if you throw out the data, they will use it and use it in helpful ways, which is naive, is rather <laughs> to think of themselves as like coordinators and conveners, you know, building in funding and support for for working with some of these outside partners, transparent kind of governance relationships in terms of like who has access to what data and who owns it and how is it going to be used. And when you start to work in those ways, which are like not at all new, um, the whole movement of like co-production and collaborative governance that has a really strong tradition in places like the United Kingdom, for example, where there are a lot of scholars have done a lot of really interesting research on the kind of how do you do this in an accountable and sustainable way. You can apply those to this new world. Um, and that's a very exciting opportunity for governments to, to kind of move in that direction. So we'll there, see. What yeah, is there, yeah. Is there a role for governments in just as a Clearinghouse for best practices, you know, this this worked in this community. Why can't you try it in your community rather than having people reinvent the wheels? It, it seems to be something I don't hear very much of it. And I just wonder if that's happening on, on a regular basis or if it's something that we could beef up. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the public servants who are doing work in this space and the civic tech groups as well are sort of a highly collaborative group. And they're they're really like one of their mantras is work in the open. Right. So that means yeah. not just talking about the work that you're doing and being transparent about it, but also working with open source code, um, you know, sharing, um, like thinking in terms of platforms. So like if there is a shared function that other units in your government are going to need to execute as part of a routine service transaction, let's say um, identity, like managing your identity or notifications, that's something governments need to do a lot. So instead of just building individually, you could 
kind of build something that then others can repurpose and reuse. So there's this real sense of like, we need to work together and share our resources. And you can do that internally in government. And we've also seen it happen across jurisdictions where governments are now sharing code and building on each other's approaches. And and so that's really exciting because what it also means is for the kind of lower resource, lower capacity governments, there's room to be kind of carried along by leadership from some of the bigger players who the bigger governments that have access to that talent or to that to that capacity. So that part of it, I think, is incredibly exciting um, and something that like the community of public sector technologists who are committed to using data and tech to improve governance, they're all about and they're like, you know, it's a, it's actually could be a very exciting case study of like federalism, the success of how federalism can work well, right, is through some of these collaborative technology partnerships that we're starting to see happen across jurisdictions in Canada. Yeah, which is which would be a huge boost to rural Canada and small communities, right? I mean, that's one of the challenging things right now is, you know, people, I think people are interested in moving a little bit further out and trying to figure out both for lifestyle and for cost, but but you hear some of them say, but I, I will lose out on some of the basic services. And even though the world's digital, there are things I'm going to miss out on just because the difference between a small rural community, what it can offer and deliver versus a, a big community um, is, is quite different. So, um, yeah. well, with that, on an optimistic, sorry, you're going to say something? No, disagreeing. Yeah, I, I was going to say with that and on, a, on, a, on an optimistic <laughs> note, uh, I want to thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, this has been super. Uh, hopefully we've raised literacy a little bit and uh, the, the dozens of people who listen to our podcast will... Uh, <laughs> think a little bit more, feel a little differently about government, or at least a little bit more about government. So thank you very much, Amanda. Hopefully you come back sometime. Thanks so much, Mike. Great chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Public Opinion and Informed Insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.